Hi, I'm here again today with Paul Tizard. Hi, Paul. How are you? Very good, John. It's, uh, doing something slightly different today, aren't we? We are. We are. So instead of me asking you what you want to talk about, do you want to take over from here? Yes. I get the chance to put John Tomlinson on the back foot and ask him a bunch of questions because it's nearly always the other way around. It is. It is. And I couldn't keep quiet for any longer. So <laughs> I think I'm going to enjoy this. I've always been wondering when you've been asking us all these questions, what do you know? Because you've been doing this learning and development thing for as long, if not longer, as some of the people we've been interviewing. So you've got a view. 23 years, I think it is. Well, there you go. See, so today we'll get a bit of a chance. So you've picked a topic of unconscious bias. Yeah, that's right. Why, why is that? Well, first of all, I run workshops on this and and therefore you, you naturally kind of have to learn stuff before you actually it's helpful. deliver. Yeah, it is. It's very helpful. And um, so it's something that I've, I've I've run, I don't know, maybe 20 to 30 workshops on this. So I've really internalized the messages of it. And I found it to be probably one of the most interesting and powerful things that I've ever learned. So just, that's going to no, just pause. Just let that one hang. <laughs> that's remarkable. Go on then. So you, you've internalized it. You've run it about 20 or 30 times. What is yeah, it? Yeah, and, and well, I was just going to say, and also I think the other side of it is that I've increasingly tried to use it in my interactions with people. And a lot of that is when I'm doing L&D consultancy or when I'm in a, in a training room as well. But I've, I've actually probably found it more useful in the more consultancy type side of the job. And I think that's because when I'm doing L&D in a facilitation mode, I kind of adopt a bit of a character anyway. And therefore, I'm sort of in a very kind of highly tuned state of mind. Um, do you know what I mean? I don't know if you, you know, I'm, I'm trying I'm smi- to imagine you highly tuned, but yes. Well, but- you know, I mean, I'm smiling more. I'm deliberately being more energetic. Yes. I'm, uh, you know, accepting things that people say, even if my natural personality might reject those. Yeah, you're in a, you're in a, an up state. As yes. yes. So, so what is it? What is it? Well, it, it's part of. It's what we all have in us. It's a human thing. We all have this kind of system, this way of editing the world around us. And we do that in a way that's completely biased. And and therefore, where where we think we can see objective reality and interpret objective reality, we just can't at all. We've got this like extremely subjective view of the world. And just being aware of that and understanding what's happening doesn't get rid of it in any way, but it just, it gives you a huge amount of self-awareness and then for you therefore can act upon that. So the interesting thing for me is the way you presented that, you made quite a bold assertion that it was, it's almost like it was like fact. Yeah. Which bit of it don't you think is fact? Do you mean what I just said is? Yeah, because you said it's, you, you said we have a subjective experience, but we, we are all, the impression I got from what you said was that we're always filtering things in a way which has got this unconscious bias going on. And you said it, you know, I imagine that some people who listen to this will will say, oh, yeah, absolutely. But others might struggle with that concept. And I was just wondering what's behind that. How, how are you so sure? Right. Well, I mean, there's, there's various different bits of research about it. I think it's kind of only become crystallized into something called unconscious bias fairly recently. Mm. But I think there's quite a lot of research around the way that the brain takes in data information from around us and then acts upon that data, but only presents a certain amount of it into the the conscious mind so there's quite a lot of information of data around that in terms of neurology psychology and stuff like that uh, i suppose the most popular name that we think about when we think about these things is daniel kahneman whose book on thinking fast and slow was a very very much talking about this kind of concept so there, there is quite a lot of solid basis of research on this and it certainly maps with my own experience and probably a lot of other people's so would you recommend that as a, as a good sort of first stab that book yeah i think it's i mean it is a good book it's not specifically just talking about this but it does it it is very much talking about that difference between fast thinking slow thinking so i think it's a very good because i bought the book and you've not read it well i I like a lot of self-development books i've got i thought if i just owned it that was like step one have you put it on your shelf it's on my shelf step two that's the main thing shelfware I mean, I can see that from where I'm sitting now, I can see the title of it. Oh, well, there you go. I so, mean, you know, so I pretty much, I mean, I, I mean, I haven't opened it, but that's, that's quite close. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, if that doesn't, if that doesn't work, I don't know what will. <laughs>
So by a process of osmosis, it should have gone in. So, um, okay, so that's a, that's a good book that people could look up. So give us a sort of, talk us through some of the key elements that you could put across in a few minutes so that if nobody does anything else, they think, oh yeah, I've got it, I've, I can use this. Right. I suppose the the place to start would be the difference between um, that fast and slow thinking idea. And we all know that we have this, whenever something happens, there is some kind of stimulus. We have a, a very instinctive, very quick response to that, where we'll jump to some kind of judgment or conclusion about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And that's that kind of quick thinking stuff. And that's very useful because we need to have emotional fight flight reactions to things. Um, we do, we do need that. But then if we actually want to kind of go through and make a proper decision, like for example, a recruitment decision, then what we don't want to do is be led by those quick reflexes, those quick, I like you, I don't like you responses that we naturally get when we meet other people. We want to get past that and we want to sit down and we want to make a much more logical decision, a much more rational decision. So well, aren't you clear saying all that is, bias out the way? Okay, so the, so you're talking about the the halo and horn effect. Are you linking it into that? Yeah, very much so. I mean, that's that's part of it. And um, you know, the, the, there's quite a lot of research into how this affects different things in organisations about how you might see, for example, that in our culture, our culture being British Western type cultures, um, you will find, for example, it's easier to get a higher performance appraisal if you're white than if you're non-white. People tend to get higher performance appraisals if they're not overweight. Overweight people get worse performance appraisals. And there is quite a lot of research showing this sort of effect. So it's a very real thing in organisations. So That's really interesting. That is. So, I mean, have you got any links that people could sort of follow this up with that could spring to mind? Um, I can put some on the website. Okay. Following this way, because there's quite a bit of research and talks and uh, you know data and information on it, and a lot. Of, I mean, this is something that actually cropped up quite recently with um, David Cameron, the who I don't know if you remember him. He used to be prime minister in the UK. Oh yeah, I've seen him around. Yeah, I know the one. Yeah, but he, he was talking about this not that long ago actually, and similarly talking about the the role of unconscious bias in hiring decisions in the way people are uh, appraised and therefore that impacts people's pay and things like that. Really? So this, yeah, I mean, so, so there is quite a lot of um, recognition of this even at government level. Mm. And in fact, the, the in, in the UK, the Department of Work and Pensions did some research on this, and the, the same research was echoed in the US, whereby they applied for uh, something like 900 jobs with identical CVs, the only difference being they changed their name. So somebody was called something like Alison Thomas, somebody else had a, a, an Indian-sounding name, somebody else had a black-sounding name. And the most white-sounding name got uh, a response much more quickly than the Indian and the black-sounding names. And this same experiment was repeated in the US. And it was consistently shown that the whiter your name sounds, the more likely you are to get a response to recruitment. That's quite shocking. Well, it is. It is. And it, it, it it's the same CV with the same uh, information, the same experience, the same qualifications. And it's consistently the whiter the name the quicker the response that you get, the the fewer the fewer you need to send off before you get a positive response. I mean, okay, so all right, so there's so it shocking like, stuff. So shocking you, stuff. It's, it's shocking. So it's it's overdue then. Well, I I just want to give you one more example because I think this the idea I guess a lot of us might put in our heads at that point is oh my god you know what a bunch of racists there are you know looking at jobs. and these people aren't consciously racist as far as we're aware. I mean, there will be of course people that are. But one example which I came across when I was doing research for this, which I thought was fascinating, was about U.S. car salespeople. The, uh, a car salesman doesn't care whether you're black, white, man, woman, you know, big, small, tall, short, whatever. They just want commission. So whatever racist or sexist feelings they might have, they're not particular. They don't govern their actions consciously because they just want to sell cars. And the one thing that they don't want to do is waste time with people that just come along joyride the car, test it around, and then just don't buy it. Yes. So they have this culture there of, of joyriders, as they call them, that whereby you've got to try and get rid of them as soon as possible. And the way you get rid of them is you go in at the highest possible price for the car that you can get away with, and that just tries to put them off. And what they found was that with looking at white men, white, uh, white women, black men, black women, that they went in at a much higher price for... Well, the lowest price they went in for was white men. So in other words, they took white men most seriously. 
then white women, then black women and black men, they took least seriously. In other words, they went in with the highest possible price just to try and get rid of them. And what's fascinating about that is loads of car salesmen are also black. So this isn't just a load of white people being racist. These same assumptions are being made by black car salespeople. And the data doesn't remotely support this. In fact, the opposite. The people that are most likely to joyride are actually the white men. So that's pure perception. Pure perception. So it's it's really interesting how this... That's interesting. That's a lot more interesting because I've heard the term used, but pretty much it's been limited to, oh, be careful when you're interviewing. That was it. You know, so that's a much richer version of it that you're talking about. Yeah, and, and, and where it comes from, and I'm, I'm kind of more or less stepping through the workshop that I deliver mm. at the moment, not, not the bit I've just been talking about probably for too long. But um, from this point on, I'm, what I would then do in a workshop, having sort of done an introduction, how I asked people what they think we mean by unconscious bias. Well, actually, let me ask you, what do you think we mean by it? How would you sort of summarize it? Uh, I would say that you are leaning towards or away from something but you're not aware that you do it. Yeah, okay. It, it, but people, in specifically oh, in this yeah, case, yeah, yeah. it's people. about people. Yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah. When, when you say something, yeah. I mean, that's... I mean, the, the, yeah, I mean, the, um, the fact that you might be biased against a lion is it's not <laughs> neither here nor there. It's probably a, a, health, a healthy bias. Yeah, um, that's fair enough, yeah. No, 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 the survivors are all people that leaned away. So... Uh, um, <laughs> Anyway, just to write that down, that's good That's good stuff. Good tip. Yeah. But um, the, the phrase that we use when I'm doing this workshop is it's your natural people preferences. So all of us can do what psychologists call social categorization. So when we meet people, we're naturally kind of sorting them into categories of, yeah, you're quite like me, I like you, I get you. Or no, you're, I don't know what's wrong with you, you're, you know, wired to the moon or whatever. And we all kind of sort people into these in-groups, night groups, which comes from this kind of tribal past evolutionary tribal past that we've had so it's that kind of natural people principles it's quite healthy a lot of the time because for example and again this is a really important point if you're for example walking home at night and you fear the person who's you know 50 yards behind you could attack you so you're 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 being quite biased about that person they haven't actually done anything to indicate they're going to attack you but you you potentially naturally have that fear that's actually quite a healthy fear to have. And the best thing to do is get yourself safe. You could be being completely unfair about that person, but it doesn't matter because the cost of getting that wrong is too great. You could see how in the past, if you were sort of walking around the savannah and you see some guys from the tribe down the road and you think, you know, oh, hang on, better hide, don't trust them. Mm -hmm. That's probably going to be more likely to lead to your survival than if you sort of whistle and go, over here, fellas, let's have a chat. You're probably going to end up in deep trouble so evolutionary so wise thinking, quick thing is that's your quick thinking yeah oh my god an unknown person somebody might outgroup hide they're dangerous they're bad people yes and you, you could see how that could actually be quite a although although you're kind of you're missing out on opportunities of potential friendships and connections that's a lower price to pay than if you get it wrong the other way where you might find your head cut off or something yeah which would which would take the edge off the weekend wouldn't it it would it would be a nuisance <laughs> That's certainly true. <laughs> so, um, so it does. So, so you know, that's it's, quite a leap, though, isn't it? So they're either your friend or they're going to take your head off. Well, you know, I mean, that was probably true kind of in the kind of dichotomy you've got there going on. But that is that is how it works with things like chimpanzees. You know, if they see somebody from another chimpanzee group, I don't know the collective noun of chimpanzees, but they group, isn't it? Or is that something? Whoop, whoop. Did you say troop? Is troop. it troop of something? Oh, I don't know. Well, that's baboons, isn't it? Oh, I don't know. Anyway. But whatever, a troop of chimpanzees or whatever. It's a group of them. A group of them. <laughs> what they do is, if they see another group, so I understand, and I'm not a, a, an expert in this stuff, they will they will just try and kill every other chimpanzee. Uh, humans obviously don't behave like that, but there is still that distrust of strangers. And it's not something that you can get rid of, because it is, it is hardwired in by evolution. So it's not something that's going to go away just because you attend a, uh, you know, a two-hour workshop. So you do all of this in two hours. That's so. And that's yeah. To get across. So are people quite when you give those those bits of research? Are people quite surprised, alarmed? It, it, that's a really interesting question. It varies. You get some people that are quite almost quite defensive. Mm. You know, they might say things like, "Ah, oh, yes, but that's because," 
Yes. And I've heard all sorts of excuses. And But you don't know what the answer is. Like, I don't know why their organisation might have very few ethnic minorities in senior positions. I don't know the reason. But the point is, it's, it's asking a question. It's, so we don't necessarily know what the answer is. No, no, okay. And, and, and similarly, you know, when we are making assumptions when we say that the, the whiter sounding name got replied quicker because we can't ask the people what made you count that and discount the others. All we can do is do the experiment enough times that a pattern emerges. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I imagine if you were to ask them, they'd be completely unaware of it. I, I, I suspect so, but obviously we don't know. The only one where you could get a bit of a handle on was the research that I read about on, with regards to the car salespeople. But again, I've, had, I've, I've talked about that. I don't, I don't mention all these examples every time, but when I have mentioned that one, and I've had people come back and say, ah, oh, yes, but that's because, and come up with some thing about how e- income, disposable income varying by race, blah de blah so it's a logical decision. And, and, you know, they don't know. They have no idea if that's true or not. No. And, it just, and it, it just and sounds, it sounds like knowledge. So they, they, yeah. they just kind of come out, oh, yes, that's because. Yeah, so that's a kind of a defensive strategy, and it's applying logic to something, a decision that was made in a... A blink of an eye um, to sort of yeah. justify after the fact. Yeah, and it's interesting, Jonathan. Keep going. It is like <laughs> it's lo- it's logic, but it it's kind of guesswork. It's not. It's kind of guesswork that sounds logical. No, it's it's, it's spurious logic. It's, it's spurious logic, but it's kind of finger in air. It's guesswork, really. Yes. I was just trying to think of a word that combined guess and logic because it's sort of guesswork logic. I can't really think of one. You can you can have a new one. Logic. Well, yeah, but they yeah, don't. that's kind of what I want to say. It's logic. I reckon if you say it enough time on your podcast, it'll become a word. It'll stick. Just an idea. Um, so, okay, so you so you exp- you go through a bit of research. You get people to think about it. You ask some questions. And they people start to justify it. Then 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 what happens? Is that, how do you actually get them to then say, so what? What do I do with this? Well, I think b- before that, what we talk about is. Um, we talk a little bit more about the actual mechanics of it. And what I usually do then is I've got some papers prepared and they say on them things like DNA, values, beliefs, emotions, um, assumptions, decisions, behaviours. Right. And I give them those papers in mixed up in random order. And I ask them in groups to discuss what order they think they should go in with the kind of most profound, most difficult thing to change, the real base of who we are at the bottom all the way through to the the most superficial thing at the top okay i usually draw this as an iceberg on a because trainers always have to draw icebergs for pretty much everything yeah we love a good old iceberg we do we do i i I usually draw a triangle on the chart and say to people what's that and they go a triangle i say no it's an iceberg which for some reason always gets a laugh really yeah is that something that happens it's the way you tell them of the world that's the way you tell them paul (laughs) I draw a squiggly line on to show the waterline, and then and, and I have a slide with an iceberg on just to really ram home the point. Yeah. That this is an iceberg. I am a trainer. Here's yeah. an iceberg. <laughs> have iceberg. We'll travel. Four box model coming up shortly. Yeah. There isn't one of those. I should put one in. Three circles overlapping. No, no. This is the this is kind of the only model really. Oh my goodness. So uh, I will think it's, of a two by two matrix. But... It's woeful. It, it is lacking. <laughs> But anyway, I get them to sort these things out, and everybody gets DNA at the bottom, and everybody gets um, behavior at the top as the only thing above the waterline. And then they put these things in order, and people always put values and beliefs at the bottom. They put the order differently sometimes. Some people put beliefs at the bottom. Some people put values at the bottom. And it doesn't really matter which way round they put them, because it kind of depends how you interpret the word. Yes, okay. So the, the examples that I use at this point is I say, well, if, for example, being English, we have a value of courtesy, it's quite an important value of being English that we believe it's very strong, very important to treat people with courtesy. Yes, we do. And therefore, we have a belief about what we think is right and wrong. So if, for example, you hold the door open for me, I believe the right thing to do is to say thank you. Now, as some listeners of this podcast may know, I, I actually live in Spain. Let me tell you, they don't have the same belief. So sometimes when I'm going through in the morning get to get my train, I hold the door open for the people behind me. They don't all seem to think it's the right thing to do to say thank you. Quite a lot of them will just barge through. Not even eye contact. Not even eye contact, Paul. They just barge straight through. I mean, is, is it good to share this right now? 
<laughs> so what happens then is I make an assumption based on their behavior that they're kind of, kind of some extremely rude, horrible person. Yes. And I will have an emotional reaction to that assumption that I've made, which is usually hatred. That I, at that point, I actually really dislike that person. And That's therefore... That's a strong instant reaction, isn't it? I think it's a bit strong. Do you still have that? I mean, or have you con- conditioned I've calmed yourself? down. No, no, because this is the unconscious bias has calmed me down on this one. But I used to get really annoyed because I would hold the door open for somebody. Sometimes you'd be like waiting for like, you know, four or five seconds or something. And the person wouldn't even give you eye contact, you know. They just walk straight through as if you're, that's your job to hold the door open for them. And you end up with dozens, like dozens piling through, you know. <laughs> just someone missing, say thank you. You know, yeah. But how much time have you wasted holding the door waiting for someone to say thank you? I mean, in terms of... Well, I'm courteous. I can't help it. It's my English nature. So so I have this emotional reaction to this assumption that this person's a very rude person. (laughs) And therefore, I make a decision and my behavior results from that. And of course, being British, my behavior is completely ineffectual. And I just go... Yeah, something like that. Drop drop some hints. Yeah. (laughs) There's nothing remotely productive happens. (laughs) But, you know... (laughs) But that's because of that. And, And... Interestingly, in Spain, for example, they don't necessarily hold the value of courtesy. I don't mean they think people should be discourteous. No. But they have a very strong value of friendliness. And therefore, the right thing to do is always be friendly with other people. So they would see my courtesy as quite cold. Not necessarily rude, but they kind of think, hmm, you're you're not acting in the friendly way that you should be. And you're acting in a way that's courteous, which is a bit cold. So the, the the assumptions they're making and the emotional reactions they're having because of those assumptions is based on their biases, their values, and they, they would then judge English people as cold and English people would judge Spanish people as rude. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I do. Yeah, interesting. So it doesn't particularly matter what order people put these things in, but the key point no. is no. you make you make assumptions about what's happening around you and then you have an emotional reaction to those assumptions. So your kind of tipping point of unconscious bias is, is at that point. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. Am I talking too much here? No, no. I'm just, I'm just listening to what you're saying, and um, thinking. Once you've gone through your examples, and then they've put, they put them in the order, what do you do next? What, what's the moment where they go, oh right, and, and they maybe have that same experience that you do, where you think this is a really useful thing to have learned. Well, I mean, at that, at that point, we, I, I'm facilit- trying to facilitate a discussion. I do my walkthrough of that. And I will try and facilitate a discussion around similar examples because I work in a, an international environment. You can usually get some good fun out of around the way the different nationalities rub mm. up against each other sometimes. Mm. So, you know, we have jokes around the fact that, you know, if, if you're English and you say to somebody, do you want a cup of tea? And they go, no, you go, OK. Whereas if you're sort of Irish or Spanish, you have a much more inclusive approach where you kind of have to force the tea onto people. Are you sure? Come on, are you sure? Are you sure? Whereas <laughs> in England, that's kind of rude because I just told you no. So, you know, leave me alone. <laughs> Whereas in Spain, if you don't pursue them, then that would be quite rude. Oh, so really? you get this kind of, yeah, because it, it's, it's the same with Irish. Irish are very inclusive as well, where they will desperate to include you. So they will force you into having this cup of tea that you've just said quite clearly you don't want. Uh, and that, to an English person, will feel like you're pressuring them and you're sort of not respecting the fact that they just said no. Whereas if you don't do that pursue, an Irish person will be there going, you know, God, what the hell do you have to do to get a cup of tea around here? <laughs> so it's you can have quite a good laugh with these sorts of examples. You mm. get people talking about that. And at that point then, and people are standing up at this point because they've been doing this activity of putting these papers in order, which I make them put out on the floor. And we're then standing around and walking through them. Yes. So people are standing up at this point, And then I go back to my flip chart where I draw my triangle. And I've drawn the same things in the same order onto the chart by this point and now i t- cleverly turn it into a prism and I, I explain and this is this is the bit that i think is most fascinating i think this is just I, i'm not entirely convinced of all the research that this is based on it feels a little bit light but there is uh, so, so is this is this q uh pop psychology now or is i this think kind of... so i think so i think there's so a little it bit doesn't of make sense though doesn't it even if the research isn't there it does people would, you get that sort of you, most trainers will can say something you can sort of people will nod their head and go yeah i can i can accept that sort of generally true even if there isn't some research that says so yeah i think you're right and this i one of those well, I, I think it's a bit more to that. It's sort of pop neuropsychology, if there is such a thing. 
There but, is. Uh, yeah. it, it's, well, the, what they what they say. I don't know who they I'm are. I just want to tell you about a great website I found about this. It's it's written by a guy who does um, brain scanning for a living. Have you seen it? No. All I'd say is you can edit this out if you want to. It's called neurobollocks.com. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, I have seen that. Yeah, that's really good, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, so. Yeah, well, this is a bit neurobolocksy. I think it's kind of going in that area. It may be true. I don't know. It just sounds to me. It just, just it has a ring of neurobolocks about it. Okay, go on then. But it's they, what they say, and I say I don't know who they are. No. But what they say is that in any moment the human being is receiving twelve million bits of data in any moment. Okay. Now, I have no idea how they calculate this, and I don't particularly like the worst use of the word moment because it doesn't sound very scientific to me. No. So usually I say every second. But actually, the, the research that I've heard says moment. So there's this idea that we're receiving 12 million bits of information. The bit by bit, I mean, the, you know, the actual computer use of the word bit. So yeah. that, that is a technical term. Yeah, well done. So that makes it straight away, that's more academic. Yeah, so it sounds, sounds true. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that information is visual, about sort of 60, 65% of that being visual through our eyes, of course, but then there's, you know, sounds, temperature, feel, etc. So we're, we're continually getting this massive amount of information pouring into us as a human. And our conscious brain can only cope with 40 bits of information every second. We're going from 12 million yes. down to 40. So that's a hell of an edit job mm. that's going on there. And that essentially, that edit job is just rushing through that prism, if you remember, which used to be an iceberg. So yes. that prism is yeah. rushing through that, and it's presenting us with this information. We simply do not have time to, to examine that 12 million bits of information. We just don't have time. So we just get this kind of 40, and it's just bang full of assumptions mm. and just you know blanks filled in all over the place. And you can catch it out. And this is what I think is really interesting, is you can catch this out because you, you see it all the time. You know, when you, you're at home alone and you think you can see a a person in the room and it's just a hat stand or whatever. Those kind of things where you're absolutely sure that you've seen somebody and you turn and look and it's, there's nobody there. That must have happened to you, yeah? Yeah. And that's that. It's that's that what you put it down to. Yeah, well, it's not just me. I'm not out on my own here. <laughs> Paul, Paul, this is uh, based on this uh, neurobolics research. So, <laughs> you know, it is this, your brain is filling in all these blanks. And you, you can trick it. There's loads of, you know, optical illusions and visual illusions where you can yeah. trick your brain into filling in blanks that aren't there. That's what optical illusions are. It's not really actual optical illusion. It's your brain that's illusioning you, not your eyes. Okay. The 12 million to 40 illusions. Get it? I'm all right. Yep. And what's really interesting about this is that there is a slight time delay and, and you can catch it because the time it takes to bring in that 12 million bits of information and, and edit it down to 40, there is a slight time delay and you can catch it. Because some, some of that data, if there's a threat, will go straight to your amygdala and will trigger a response before it gets into your conscious brain. So okay. you will find yourself reacting and responding to things before they appear to happen. Because you don't know they happen until they're in your conscious brain. So the experience of being you, the experience of being me, is you sitting inside your own con- sub- you know, prefrontal cortex bit looking at this movie that's being played listening to this soundtrack of this 40 bits of information, this heavily edited view of objective reality. And sometimes your body will be reacting to stuff which hasn't yet been played on that. Does that make sense? Yes. So perhaps an example would help. Okay. Well, the first time I noticed this was when I was about eight years old. And I was walking out of my bedroom and I turned to look to my left. And then my sister screamed. After I'd looked, I'd already heard her scream. Does that make sense? No, I'm getting the order muddled up. So you look right. Okay. All right. Let me tell you again. Let me try again. So she screamed already, but you hadn't heard it. Yeah. So the the actual the actual order in kind of an objective timeline was she screamed, I heard it, I turned to look, the scream was then played in my conscious mind. You had all this as an eight year old. Well, no, I I worked it out afterwards. (laughs) Once that, I didn't I didn't work this out as an eight year old. As an eight year old, I was walking out of my room. I turned to look, and then my sister screamed. And for some reason, she was coming out of the bathroom without clothes on, which I have no idea why. But that was, she saw me screamed and slammed the door. I thought at the time that I had reacted to the future. I thought I'd got like an echo from the future. 
that's what I thought I was reacting to. Right. And for the next sort of 30 years, I believed I had seen <laughs> an echo of the future until I did this unconscious bias thing. But I hadn't, obviously. Yes. My amygdala had reacted to something which hadn't yet got into my own timeline, my own experience of timeline. That's pretty... Uh... Since then, I've, I've noticed it happen loads of times. I, I, it may happen to you where you look at your phone and then it rings. That happens quite often where you look at your phone and you know, a split second later it will then ding or... Or do you know you get a WhatsApp message or something? Does that not happen to you? Yeah. So you. So what you're saying is that because there's so much information that actually part of your brain did see the phone trigger, but you weren't able. You didn't because there's a slight delay. When you then look, you feel like you've almost predicted it, but actually you already part of your brain it was already there ahead of you. Yeah. You exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The ding made you look because you reacted to this ding or the phone ringing or whatever it is. But the actual thing didn't get put into your timeline, your conscious timeline, until a split second later. So you end up reacting before it appears to happen. Okay. I've noticed it happened a lot, actually, now. Because the other day I was crossing the road, for example, and I stopped still and then saw the car that was about, that was about to knock me down, that didn't knock me down. No. no. I, I, I notice that happening now quite often, where the order isn't quite right. So that's going to be interesting, whether when people are listening to this, will either go, what? Or they'll start noticing things and you'll get a bunch of people contacting you saying, you were right. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I mean, that, that bit's just interesting. I think it's not, it's not particularly useful, but it is interesting. Okay. It helps make sense of what's actually happening when you realise that your body's reacting to stuff that hasn't been consciously gone into your conscious mind yet. But I don't think it's necessarily particularly useful in terms of, okay, unconscious past, what do I do with it? Mm-hmm. But it's quite an interesting point, and it blows people's minds to actually think that I cannot see objective reality. I cannot touch and feel it at all. All I am doing is sitting inside my brain, experiencing this heavily edited movie, and that's all I can see. I can't actually see anything that's in front of me. All I can see is what my brain has reconstructed inside my head. And I think if people get that point, it really does blow their minds. Yeah. It's fascinating. That's quite an interesting concept. I suppose it's, it reminds me of when, if you do work with people who are having, un, are having unhelpful thoughts, that you, you help them to sort of realise, well, the thoughts are one thing and you're something else. The thoughts are just your brain whirring away, doing things, but that, the thoughts are not you. They're just, they're just past, they come through you, go around you, but you're not, they're not you. And that sort of sense of, who am I? And then the brain doing its stuff. It sounds similar to that, unless I've completely got this wrong. No, no, you're right. I mean, because the the experience of being you essentially is that experience in the in just a smallish part of your brain, that conscious bit. And that's why when when we use language, we say things like "my brain," "oh, that's just my brain doing this," mm. as if we're detached from it, as if it's not us. And we're used to saying that when it's something like "my foot," "my arm," "my hand." which is still an integral part of you. Yes. But with the language we use makes it sound like it's as much of you as your shoes or your bag or your phone or whatever, because we use it in that way. You know, we say my hand, not me. But that even extends to the brain, where we will talk about my brain. Oh, that's just my brain. Well, that's you. But we don't say that, because we feel very much like we're just this conscious bit at the front. Okay. So all good stuff so far. So the, the pragmatic part of me is now going... Oh, right. yeah. Yeah, well, we will, we will get to that in a second. But I think that, that, that's, that's, the, that's the kind of key concept, anyway, that you're trying to get across to people is... All, and this is the kind of... It's what's called overconfidence bias. And that was one of the biases that were identified by Kahneman and a guy called Amos Tversky when they, were, when they were doing the research on this. They invented these things called heuristics, which were just shortcuts, this idea that the brain has hardwired into it. All of these shortcuts which help us do that massive edit job. So a lot of the ways we'll edit will be culturally related, so related to your upbringing, your culture, and all that kind of stuff. But quite a lot of it is also just built into your DNA. It's just, who, just part of being human. And one of the things they said is called overconfidence bias. And this is this idea that we're, we, we are overconfident in our own subjective view of the world. So we think that our view of the world is objective reality. And we think that it's a lot more shared than it actually is. 
Whereas in reality, we all have remarkably different subjective views of the world. And that's a, and that's a really interesting point as well. Because it doesn't matter how many times I've delivered this and said this, I still maintain this view in my head that although I'm quite happy to accept that everybody else's view of the world is subjective and flawed, <laughs> I, I'm the one that has got the objective view. Yes, well, you've got the third eye. You've got the insight. I've got the, yeah, the common sense. I know it's all true. I know that this is, you know. Yeah, so what sort of pushback or challenges do you get from the humans that you train this with? At this point, you don't get a lot. You get a lot of people that are... Um, just fascinated by what you're talking about yeah and the way you're going you know it's, it's a lot must be a nice experience for you yeah it is i mean it's usually it's quite discursive perhaps more so than i've implied by just talking a lot now and people are really interested by it and they're throwing in their own examples and stuff like that occasionally you get people that you know insist on being cynical and therefore have to maintain an element of everything i'm told must automatically be wrong because i'm far too cynical but I don't mind that, you know, I'm quite happy to rise to that challenge. And but then you've got to expect, if you start talking about people's perception, realities, etc., etc., you're going to get cognitive dissonance from delegates because you're fundamentally challenging something that is core to them that they may not have thought about or don't want to. So I would be surprised. I mean, it would almost like be a failed program if people didn't react. Yeah, no, absolutely. And some people just gobble it up because they're just fascinated by it or they just they just find it interesting for the sake of but as you say other people are quite resistant to essentially being told that their view of reality isn't correct but you can tell there's an element of people that go yeah okay intellectually i understand what you're saying but i'm still right aren't i (laughs) and you can tell that that's there and as i said it took me quite a few times of delivering this workshop to recognize i was doing the self same thing and even now when i'm explaining it to you I'm fully aware that I'm doing it still. And mm. I can't I can't shake it. All I can do is be aware of it. Yes. And that's, you know, for me, one of the key things that I found really useful about this is that what, if I'm talking to somebody else and they're saying points that I, they start talking, I'm just thinking, no, they're wrong or they're miles away or no, they're not getting this. And I'm already, my brain's jumping to those assumptions that that person isn't making a valuable contribution. Yes. To actually just stop and think, hang on a minute, you don't know that. That's just your view of reality. It may not be true. And just forcing myself to stop and listen and try and understand, try and engage, and all that has made me so much more effective, not just as a facilitator, but as I said at the beginning, but also in my role as a consultant. Yes. So when you've run this with 20 or 30 times, groups, whatever, what sort of things do people say have improved as a result of this thinking? Well, I mean, usually it comes down to things like, because we, you know, at this point, this is the point now where we start to try and land it in the organization. So we then, we're just talking about things like recruitment. We're talking about things like performance appraisals and stuff like that, and promotion decisions, uh, opportunities for new work that might come up. So we're trying to now tie it very much into examples of, of real life. Right. So really the the effect that we hope it would have, and I have had this feedback specifically from people to say that they've made very different recruitment decisions following this interesting and that have that have i mean it's it's probably not enough enough examples to really draw that many conclusions but in the examples that i've been told which is only two or three they've said that they made different decisions than they would have made but they were so glad they had afterwards they really kind of felt that they'd made the right decision and that had been borne out in you know the performance of the individual following that yeah and I can say the same about myself as well in terms of recruitment decisions that I've made since uh, only one, in fact. But again, I was very conscious of my biases and I felt I made a much better decision than I would have done in the past. People now be thinking, how do I use it? OK, so I've got some ideas. I, I, I could be wrestling with this as a concept or I might have accepted it. Depends on where people are. But what, do I, what can I do? How can I practically use this? There's various sort of biases that is quite useful to actually talk about which, again, were identified by Kahneman and Tversky. And they're quite useful in terms of highlighting areas where you'll see virus in a very specific situation. So you can talk about very specific things that you can do about it. So, for example, one of the biases is called anchoring bias. Mm-hmm. And anchoring bias is this idea of first impressions count, judge a book by its cover, yes. those kind of things. So the first thing that you're told about something is the one that's more true than any subsequent information you're told about it. And this is that halo horns effect that you mentioned. Yes. 
So it's quite good to sort of say, well, there is this thing, it's called anchoring bands. It's a proper thing. We all have it. Don't worry. You know, you're not at fault for having this, but just be aware that if the first time you meet somebody, they make a big hash of it, they will forever be completely incompetent in your mind. And you've got to challenge that. They will have that horns effect and obviously the opposite, the halo effect. So you talk about specific examples of where that might, where you might see that, where that's happened, um, how you see that in performance reviews. You know, might go, oh, Paul's great. He's a great trainer. So whatever you do, you get a good performance review. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're good at every single part of your job. But if I get that good first impression of you, that will be, oh, yeah, no, he's great. That's fine. Yeah, well, I've made a career out of that, to be honest. <laughs> well, that's anchoring bias, taking advantage of anchoring bias, which is good. And, and there's a few other ones that I run through, which I won't run through them all now. Representative bias is interesting because that's about patterns and how strongly hardwired patterns are. And there's a really great, um, it's not an optical illusion. Again, it's a, a brain illusion, which is a picture of a chessboard where a shadow is cast across some of the squares in the middle. Mm. And you tell people that actually square A is the same color as square B. And to everybody's eye, square A and square B are completely different colors. But actually, they're not. They're identical colours, but they look completely different. And you, I really play. I really drag this out and kind of tease people a bit with this. And you know, I'm saying the actual, it, And this isn't a matter of opinion. The light bouncing off the screen on square A is going into your eye at exactly the same wavelength as the light bouncing off the screen going in, about off square B. And that information is being given to your brain. Hey, brain, these two things are the same colour. And your brain's going. I haven't got time to worry about that. I've got 12 billion, I've got 12 million bits of data to worry about getting down to 40. I haven't got time. So it just draws a chessboard. And you end up with people arguing and arguing, going, no, they're different colours. And, and I'm saying, see how persistent it is. Yes. Because the only way they can be different colours is either I'm incompetent or I'm lying to you. And they're still going, oh, well, okay. Well, that's possible, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but they, I'm saying, you see how you have to twist the world to fit in with what your brain is telling you. Mm. You actually have to twist the world so much so that me as a trainer is standing up here either lying to you or I'm just completely incompetent and they're all kind of still going eh, okay okay but you know there's a trick here somewhere what's and you can really kind of tease them into sort of seeing how they're twisting the world around so that it fits with what their brain is telling them and then you reveal you show how you can tell they're the same color and I still have people <laughs> saying afterwards no, I still don't believe it you tricked you tricked me there and I've actually sort of broken out the PowerPoint slide and sh let them watch me manipulate the slide, watch them watch me copying and pasting rectangles of colours to actually break the pattern. And when you break the pattern of the chessboard, you can see that they're the same colour. And I've seen, you've seen me just pasting it on now. You watched me do it. Yeah. And they're still sometimes going, oh, I don't know, I don't know, there's a trick here somewhere. <laughs> but it's brilliant because you can really push back and you go, you see, you see how persistent this is, this bias? So it's quite a fun one to play around with. So do you provide sort of counselling support after the programme? No, no, I just I just break everybody out. I don't repair them. That's, 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 that's not my job. No. No. A bit. <laughs> and uh, an another fun one, I said I don't want to go through them all, but another fun one is precision bias. And this is this idea that the more precise something looks, the more true it feels. So if you say something like, you know, 27.4 people think... That sounds like, oh, proper data there, proper mm -hmm. science, that's true. Whereas if you go, well, you know, two in seven people think, it just feels like you haven't done your research properly. Yes. But effectively the same thing. So there's quite, um, you, you can play around with that as well about how don't trust something just because it looks fancy on a nice PowerPoint slide or just because it looks very well presented. You know, dig behind what's really behind that data. It's quite a useful way of using unconscious bias because we are naturally drawn to trust things the more well-presented they are and the more precise they are. I'm thinking about some timeshare I bought a few years ago. Uh, I wonder if that was going on. Hmm. Well, the probably was. And this, this that's interesting because they use this in sales a lot. And uh, what they will use is things like consistency bias. And they will say things like, uh, this happened to me the, uh, a few weeks ago. I was walking down a street in Ghana, actually, in Oxford Street in Accra, in Ghana, and this guy came over and he shook my hand and he kept saying to me things like, you know, it's much more important to be nice than have money, isn't it? You know, it's great that we get on. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, of course it is. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now I have to remain consistent with what I've just said. Because I've now, so now when I'm start haggling over money, he's going, yeah, but you just said it was more important to be nice than money. And he was, I'm thinking, oh God, I did just say that. No. And I've got to remain consistent with that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's, yeah. there's this, 
and he's he's doing and then he ends up sort of giving me things and he's using like you know the Cialdini's um weapons of influence you know the um reciprocity yes the thing you know with the Harry Krishna give you a flower and then 50 meters later they ask for a donation it's that kind of principle of reciprocity whereby we don't like feeling in debt to somebody else so they they use that as well so they give you free things this guy gives me a free painting and he goes no I don't want your money I don't want your money I know it's more important to be nice than have and obviously I've got to pay him now so he's using all of these tricks all of these biases and, and, and weapons of influence and that will be the same with this timeshare thing you're talking about mm. this kind of great presentation the precision stuff the getting you to commit to things early so you must remain consistent with them all these kind of things so very interesting stuff so so I, I feel like you probably put across quite a a good uh, amount of information. So what next? So in yeah. existing, what can they do next? Okay, well, um, I think the, the the interesting thing is there is some controversy around this and I think it's worth actually talking about why there is any, why this workshop is happening at all. So I do kind of write, raise the idea that one of the reasons what there were, one of the reasons that a lot of organisations are interested in this is not just so that we are fairer and we are performing at a higher level, but also so that we're trying to create more diverse organizations that take more advantage of diversity. Okay, yeah. And because that's a reasonably controversial topic, not massively so, but it's a, it's a, it has controversy. I, I do kind of talk about that for a minute or two. And there was, um, there was um, research from the University of Michigan by a guy called Scott E. Page, and he did some research about more diverse organizations. So I quickly talk about this. But what's really interesting about it is not only did he find that more diverse organizations are more uh, successful? And he was talking about financially successful because he was studying private, publicly listed companies. Hmm. So that's what he meant by success. But he was saying not only are they more successful, but what's really interesting is the individuals in those organizations are more successful. And I suppose that's obvious because how else would the organization be successful? It's the sum of the individuals. But I thought that was a really interesting point. And he goes on to explain why Guess, why, why do you think that would be? Why would the individuals be more, more higher performing in diverse organisations? Um, I'm guessing it's something about that it's okay to be different. And so you don't have to conform to one type of groupthink or one norm. You are, because you are all different, that everyone will then feel that they have their own uh, thing that makes them special. I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, it's pretty much that. I mean, it, it's one thing is you get away from groupthink, as, as you said. And secondly, you're kind of almost empowered to be different. Mm. So you, you kind of have to speak up because you're the only one of your type, if that's yeah. the right phrase. Yeah. You kind of have to speak up, and which not only means people benefit from your knowledge and experience that they might not have done, you might have kept quiet or conformed to the groupthink, but also that's challenging for you that pushes you out your comfort zone. So you're learning. So you're always being pushed because you're having to do more. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Like so, the so the individuals are actually uh, more highly performing. And the Google video that goes along with this, because Google have done quite a lot of work on this, which is really interesting. And there's a Google video that I show uh, during the, just to give a break from me banging on, I <laughs> stick a video on for three minutes. And it's really good. And and they come up with phrases like that, you know, there's there's somebody in the video who who says if you're not aware of your conscious bias and doing something about it, you're simply not contributing at the level you could. And I think that's comes down to this sort of thing. It really kind of if, if you get it and embrace it and use it to push you out your comfort zone and all that stuff, mm. then you really do start performing at a, a high level. And I, I know I have. I know it really has improved my own contribution. Well, you certainly give me a lot because that's that's got me thinking. I know I'm supposed to be asking questions. The trouble is now I'm thinking about what you said. That happens to me when I do these interviews. I end up shutting up. I cut out the big pauses <laughs> usually when I edit it, so people don't realise how un inarticulate I'm being. But actually, you end up sort of being thinking about stuff and thinking how to apply it. Yes. Just 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 on the flip side of the point that I made, then there was another. Um, there was some other research done, and it was by I think some Harvard biker called Robert Putnam, and he actually found out what he called an inconvenient truth around this, which was the downside of diversity, which showed that a lot of diverse organisations actually performed worse than their more homogenous counterparts. Oh, really? So it was like directly contradictory to the mm -hmm. previous article, which I think is a really interesting point and worth talking about. Why do you think that might be? Oh, you're doing that trainer thing now. I am, aren't I? Oh, I'm feeling, I'm feeling facilitated. 
<laughs> feeling that also that that pressure of singles out that I've got to answer now. <laughs> and and you've been recorded. So. And been recorded. Um, why would homogenous organisation be more successful than a diverse one? Um, I can the only thing the only thing I can think of is that possibly that the comfort factor is higher, and so because there is no difference, you know, everyone's the same, that provided it's going in the right direction, that people feel comfortable because you're, well, you're like me, aren't you? That's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely an element of that. And you Which can get the more... facilitator's way of saying, no, you're wrong, but I'm going to make you feel good about it. <laughs> well, no, there is genuinely an element of that, though, because there is, there is, if we're all making the same assumptions and we all get each other, that there is a, it is more efficient. It's not necessarily more effective because it depends on terms of how you're pleasing your customers. But if, uh, if for example, if you're running a restaurant and lunch starts at 12 and finishes at half one, and that's just the assumption, we're all happy with that and no one ever thinks to challenge it, that will probably work quite efficiently. Mm. But then when somebody Spanish turns up at two looking for lunch, you're missing out on that custom. Yes. So if you had a Spanish person in the kitchen and they went, hang on a minute, we need to stay open to about half past four here, then you'll get that challenge. But a homogenous organization can be a lot more efficient but they can miss out on a lot of things but the kind of the, the real reason that's in the article um the putnam article is around the idea that diversity if you just do it in a tick boxy sense actually does more harm than good if you don't also kind of train managers about how to do fairer performance appraisals if you don't tell people how to recruit properly if you don't teach teams how about unconscious bias or about how to work together all you do is you end up with silos, you end up with lack of communication, you end up with cliques, you end up with people that aren't really working together. And actually, you can go you can go backwards, you can regress. So it's a really important point to kind of think, well, actually, careless diversity is almost worse than not bothering. If you're going to do diversity, you've got to do it properly. Yes. So that's an interesting point. It is. So from that point on, then, then we just kind of land it and we just say, well, what can you do about it? And we're not going to get rid of it. But what we can do is become aware of it. Yes. Manage it and then try to make rational decisions. So that reminds me of that John Whitmore phrase, doesn't it? That I'm aware of, that I'm, that I'm aware of, I can, I can manage, and that I'm unaware of, no, that I'm aware of, I can control, and that I'm unaware of controls me. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And if you're not, I, I didn't know that phrase, actually. But it's, it's a good one, and it, it absolutely makes sense. And that, oh, that's I've very much what it's about. Over the years, John... Second, yeah, use that one. Throw it in. <laughs> I did have some good quotes that were in here. There's one from Lewis Carroll. I suppose every child has a world of his own, and every man too, for the matter of that. I wonder if that's a cause of all misunderstandings there is in life. Ooh, that's a quote from Lewis Carroll. Hey, he's good as Lewis Carroll. You can get a lot of quotes from him. He knew his onions. That one. There's another one as well. Hang on, let's see if we can find it. Lewis Carroll again. If you want to inspire confidence, give plenty of statistics. It does not matter that they should be accurate or even intelligible, just so long as there is enough of them. <laughs> and that's that precision bias. So I thought it was quite a funny, funny yeah, quote. Well, so I, I usually check that's those like the average well. management away day. Yeah. So at the point then, we, then we just have a talk about, well, what can you do about it? And we talk about things like structured decision-making processes. So for example, if you're recruiting, have a diverse panel, challenge each other's biases, be open about your biases as well, mm. and say things like, you know, Paul... I just got an impression that that person wouldn't fit in to the team. Is that my bias or is there something rational that I'm seeing? And you can challenge me on that or you can say, yeah, I saw the same thing. I think it was when they did this. And there may well be a very rational reason why you think, oh, God, no, that person would be a nightmare. Yes. Or it could be, no, I didn't see that at all. I think there's just a bias there. So you kind of help and support each other in your decision-making processes around things like recruitment or whatever. That sounds great. It sounds like quite an evocative session. And people, if they buy into it, could go away quite fired up. Well, I'm on holiday soon, so I'm going to go and make sure I actually open the book that I bought, thinking fast and slow. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not just going to carry it. I'm going to open it. Okay. Yeah. That's and, going in the right direction. So if you could recommend, so people say, okay, I like it. I might want to run something like that. What's three things they could do that would help them get started? Okay, really good question. I think that, first of all, I would, I would Google Google. I would Google the Google talk. There's a Google talk. There's one that's about an hour long and there's a three-minute video. So I would Google Google Unconscious Bias. Okay. So if you, the three-minute video is brilliant. 
and it, it sums up a huge amount of this and there's some great phrases in there um, and I've watched that video now 20 to 30 times and there are still things I hear I think I've never heard that before which just shows you what that edit job is doing yes that it takes 20 to 30 times to actually pick up on almost every single phrase in what is a fairly a very well put together three minute video so I would really recommend people Google Google okay good and one of the things that's in the hour-long thing, and you can Google this as well separately, is implicit association test. And this is a really interesting test that you can do. And it's I think it's Harvard University that do it, and you can create an account there, and you can do an implicit association test online. And this gives you some indication around what your your biases are. And it's it's absolutely fascinating and very revealing. And that's the and the great thing about that is that you could do that without having to reveal anything to anybody. You just can do it for your own self awareness. I'm guessing. That absolutely, yeah. You don't need to tell anybody you've done it. You just get a result back. I mean, I was very relieved to find out when I did it that I turned out to not be racist at all, which was brilliant. I was very pleased about that. I was uh, extremely proud of that. Were you suspicious that you might be? No, no, I wasn't at all. But you don't know what biases you've got. Well, that's, that's the point. True, yes. and, and they do say you won't like some of these answers, but it's good to know. You know, because then you can do something about it. But um, okay, so but that's it, it, it works by it, that that particular thing. It came from initial studies used to say things like, "Do you believe that women make better carers than men?" And people go, "Oh yes, yes, yes." Do you believe that men are better at maths than women? And everyone go, "Yes, yes, yes, of course." And then it got to the point of in the eighties where people realised you weren't supposed to say that anymore. So they'd all go, "Oh no, of course not, of course not." So suddenly it looked like a conscious bias had completely disappeared. Mm. And then they invented this other system, implicit association test. And that found out that they haven't disappeared at all. People just realised what they were supposed to say. Whereas you can't fool this test, the implicit association test. I don't. I, I certainly couldn't anyway. So I would definitely have a look at that as well. And I think the third thing um, I would suggest is listen, listen to this podcast again and again because there'll be loads of stuff that you missed. And I think I've talked quite quickly and thrown quite a lot of things in. So really take time to kind of absorb this, listen to it, observe yourself, challenge yourself. And really try and notice when it's happening. Oh, that's really good. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, I will certainly do the. Uh, I'm not going to listen to the podcast again, so I can't stand listening to myself. But I will do the first two, definitely. Okay. Well, I, I would recommend doing the third as well. You can. Um... <laughs> One of the things I've, I've noticed is that whenever I do any of these things, all I can hear is some um, West Country bumpkin. Although it's only a slight lilt, I can still hear it. So, um, yes, I can't get past that. I'm afraid. Well, everyone else will be able to hear it now as well, of course. The power of suggestion, the ones that's been right. put in your mind, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, I just, I, I just hear myself as this nasal Yorkshire nasal whine, <laughs> but uh, I've got used to it now. <laughs> but I think from from a point an L and D professional point of view is like, how can you use this? Okay, that's all very interesting. How can you use it? And I think that, as I said at the beginning, the kind of main ways that I've used this are one in the actual training room itself and getting more skillful yes. about really giving every single person a chance and giving every single thing that they might be saying a chance, and really getting better at overcoming whatever biases I might have had and been completely unaware of, which may be around somebody's accent, or the way somebody looks, or the way somebody's not really concentrating and playing with their phone, or whatever it is that's putting me off them. Really being aware of that and getting past that. So being a more inclusive facilitator, I suppose. So if you saw someone doing that with their phone, because I think a lot of trainers struggle with that, what would you... So how would you deal with that now? That's different, you know. Prior to the the training you've received, what what's what will change? What would you do now? Well, in that example, what I'm saying is I wouldn't jump to assumptions and kind of where in the past I might have thought that person's not engaged. I'm going to make less effort with them. I probably wouldn't have consciously thought that, but subconsciously or unconsciously, I would have thought that person's less engaged. I'll be making less effort there. Right. Whereas now I will become conscious of the fact that my my brain will leap to that place when I see somebody who's just playing with their phone and just not make any assumptions about why they're doing that. And therefore I will not, I might previously might have accidentally included, excluded them somehow. So I wouldn't be doing that. I would just be treating them as exactly the same as anybody else. So I'm not saying I've solved the problem with the phone. <laughs> All I'm saying yeah, is I, was hanging, I, I, I haven't. Here, allowed, we, here we go. Here's the solution. No, I haven't solved the problem with the phone, but what I have done is I've just made sure that that doesn't impact how I treat that person. What I won't be doing is making assumptions of that person is somehow less welcome here. Oh, it's a millennial. Millennial thing, is it? Yeah, well, they, yeah, there's this 
That's young people, isn't it? Yeah, they simply keep saying, oh, you know, be careful. This is a sort of like, I think on a TED talk, be careful, the millennials are on their way. You know, and if you separate them from their phone, they have separation anxiety and all that sort of stuff. I'm not entirely convinced. That's pop psychology, isn't it? Possibly. But I, I, I the other way that I think that I've used this really well, apart from, as I said, in the training room, is in, in the, the outside the training room, which is in the more sort of consultancy side of it, where you have to be going in and potentially challenging people or listening to people who don't necessarily agree with you or just don't get what you're saying or what you're trying to get them to do. And again, just in my interactions with those people, I've become, I think, a lot more professional, a lot more sophisticated in terms of building really good relationships and therefore being in a much better position, a much stronger position to challenge people and to and to really kind of build that relationship to bring them with me and obviously open my own mind up about what it is that they, what their objections might be or what they want to get done. I've just become a lot better at doing that and a lot cleverer at doing that because I'm very aware of my biases and their biases mm. um, and that helps me work with them so those are the two ways that i've really used it in this sort of l and d business yeah it's good stuff john and because a lot of what i do is change management as well i think there's a huge amount of bias going on when it comes to change and again having this knowledge and awareness it just transforms your ability to how you can contribute mm. and just what you can do the level of what you can of how you can interact and what you can do and the insights you can offer. It just transforms it. Well, I tell you, personally, I will definitely do the first two. I'm not going to listen to your podcast because I'm on it, but I will, I faithfully, I will go through the Google and I will Google unconscious bias. And I will also, um, what's it called, the other called implicit? Implicit association test. Implicit association. So I definitely think those two things uh, I will do. And obviously, if anybody wants to, listen to it. I do think it's probably worth going through your podcast again because it's there was some quite some quite strong ideas there that probably need two or three airings before they get in your head. I, I think so I mean it took me as I said several times of actually even delivering the workshop before I really started to understand the power of it so I'm sure very few people on the receiving end will have got to that same place just from having sat through it once. Okay well thank you very much John that was um it was a bit of a novel experience being able to ask you a bunch of questions, but to also learn something, which I have today. Um, most times when I do these podcasts, you sort of think of your own stuff, but it's quite nice to be on the other side. So I think that's your selfish reason for doing them, isn't it? You just get to learn things, question people and learn things. I've never denied that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Paul. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs>